Hello and welcome to the Simply Learning Tuition podcast channel. My name is Rosaline and I work with Simply Learning Tuition, a private tutors and education consultancy company in Kensington, London. This episode, we'll be talking with Michelle Thompson. Michelle is a speech and language therapist and the founder of Word of Mouth Therapy. Michelle is herself neurodivergent, autism and ADHD, and has an acute awareness of the differences faced by the children and young people with whom she works. Today, Michelle is joining us to talk about the role of a speech and language therapist and what you can expect from the work of a company such as Word of Mouth. We will address some of the common challenges faced by parents, especially those with neurodivergent children. So welcome, Michelle. It's lovely to have you joining us today. Um, Perhaps we could begin with a little explanation of your role and what it entails on a day-to-day basis. Okay, right. Well, hi, Rosaline. It's nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, Yes, I'm a neurodivergent speech and language therapist, um, and I have quite a niche role when it comes to speech and language therapists. Um, I work with neurodivergent children uh, in supporting them in their social understanding. And a lot of this involves emotional regulation and management of anxiety. Brilliant. And could you maybe explain what it is that a speech and language therapist does and maybe how your work follows in those footsteps, how you maybe diverge from that path? Well, we're quite a diverse bunch. I mean, if you think about speech and language therapists, we're here to help communication. Uh, so that could be adult work or paediatric work. And the, the range goes from dementia, head and neck cancer, um, learning disabilities, as well as the paediatric caseloads as well, stammering, for example. So there's quite a wide scope. Many of my colleagues work on speech and language difficulties a child might have. Um, However, the children I work with tend to have advanced language skills. So my job as a speech and language therapist um, should change names, really. I don't know what I'm going to name it, but (laughs) um, I don't know. (laughs) Um, uh, What we do at Word of Mouth is very different. So you do a lot of your work with children. Um, Could you maybe present some of the challenges that the neurodiverse children whom you work face and maybe what it is that they want the people around them to know if they're not quite at the stage of being able to advocate for themselves what is it that they want people to know and understand about them really well that's a tricky one because you've met one per one autistic person you've met just one autistic person mm. <laughs> but I think but I think I mean, I work with children children from age three up to, I think my oldest client at the moment is 16, 17. Um, so they, they want a variety of, they want people to know a variety of different things about them. But I think the main, the main message I get from my cohort is the lack of understanding. Um, and I think the problem we have is there's still such stigma for the A word, autism, that... Um, people are still very much hiding behind that. So the kids, what the kids tend to want me to advocate for is the fact that um, they are able, but they tend to have a very different learning profile. Uh, And therefore my job as a speech and language therapist is to find out how they learn and how they communicate and help them with that and pass that message onto schools and support families also. So my job, my job, if I do it well, if it's done well, 
there's a lot of um, communication between both the schools and families. We work together as a unit, that team around the child, so to speak. And I think that's when the magic can really happen. Mm. And what might some of those communication styles look like? What, how might some of these children prefer to communicate? Is there a lot of variation between it? Well, it's like, I mean, let's look at how neurotypical people communicate. Is there a lot of variation between how neurotypical? Yes. So again, you meet one person with autism, you bet just that one person. Mm. Um, you know, when I look at it, so I think I might just have to talk a bit about autism and actually what that means to be autistic from the yeah. medical model. The medical model being um, the diagnosis and how we're diagnosed. So um, I got my autism, formal autism diagnosis just over a year ago. I'd been self-identifying for about six, seven years though. Mm. Um, when I had my assessment, um, I passed. <laughs> I, got my, I got my award, I got my ADOS, and I got my autism diagnosis. Um, but, I, but to have that means I have communication impairment. I have communication disability, which I would argue to the cows come home. So what, what I'm trying to do is advocate for my kids, advocate for myself as well. Um, autistic communication is very different from neurotypical communication. When I'm with my autistic and other neurodivergent friends, there is no communication mishaps. We know what each other's talking about. We just get each other. You know, you go on the download, but we're going on deck. We're downloading on our favorite topics. We're all involved. We interrupt, we talk over each other, but for some reason it kind of works and we get there. When I enter the neurotypical world, and this is what I try to help my students with, my clients with, when I will enter the neurotypical world, I change my communication style in order to help the neurotypical, you know, help me connect with that neurotypical. Uh, it's much more challenging, it's much more stressful, and it involves a lot more processing of information. Mm. So would that be offering them tools that they can use at, in school, at home? What might some of those pieces of advice be for those children? OK, so um, I've actually developed my own programme um, because I didn't find I didn't find the programmes, the social communication programmes out there for my kids. I didn't find they were working. I didn't find they were what I wanted. Mm. Now, most of the children I work with would have if the if the diagnosis still existed, would have the Asperger's diagnosis, um, which is which one calls or considers high functioning autism. Um, I think that's a bit misleading. I prefer the term cognitively able autistic. Mm. I'm cognitively able, um, but I'm, you know, I'm not high functioning when I'm, I've got my black dog and I can't get out of my house for two days because anxiety is running so high. Mm. So with the children I work with, I don't teach social skills. For me, it's unethical. I will not teach my clients social skills because it encourages masking. And let's face it, they're masking enough in the day-to-day -day, uh, school environment. Mm. What I do with my children in my programme called Different Perspectives is to support three main areas that I think are the most important for, for our kids. Uh, we look at perspective taking, we look at self-advocacy, and we look at a really big one, emotional regulation. And those three strains we use in group work and um, and we find we, we have re we've, we've got some really good outcomes in the last two years we've been running our in-house programme. 
Mm. And could you maybe give a brief kind of overview of what those different terms mean, maybe for yes. people who have heard those terms or maybe are just not quite sure what they mean? Well, taking perspective is the ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and to notice what's going on around in our environment and maybe to adapt our behaviour according to what's happening in that environment at the time. Taking perspective ties very much into our social attention, the ability to notice those changes in our environment. Um, often the children I work with struggle with their social attention, particularly if they're not interested in what's going on. Um, and there's an impact on that awareness, on that social understanding. So we teach that. I teach children to notice what's going on in their environment, to think with their eyes, which is a social thinking term, not my own, um, <laughs> and, and to start to make assumptions about what other people might be thinking and feeling. Um, you know, so the work we do is kind of loosely based on CBT, our thoughts, feelings and behaviours impact on, on, on each other, on each one. Um, CBT being cognitive sorry, behavioral therapy. Yeah. <laughs> cognitive behavioral therapy, mm. thoughts, feelings, and behavior being in that sort of co-joined circle. Mm -hmm. And then the the next one is self-advocacy. Well, the ability to be able to ask for what you need in a in very basic terms. I mean, if we advocate for ourselves, we are being able to say no to stand up for ourselves, to pay a compliment, to say sorry, to put our hand up in the classroom and answer a question, which for a great number of my clients is an impossibility at mm. times. Um, many of my clients really struggle with the self-advocacy piece and asking for help. Some of them have come from a long line of having TAs stuck to them or lots and lots of support um, where they haven't been able to practice their own self-advocacy skills. So what we do is if we help them with that. We help them with um, learning how to put their hand up in class if that is a goal that my client wants. Mm. Are there maybe stepping stones towards that? I, <laughs> yeah. watched a, um, I watched a really interesting <laughs> lecture from Beyond Autism where they talked about um, a student who had just... A, like a green playing card and if she wanted to ask something or maybe leave the room she would just you know move it forward on her desk and it was it was a small step before that but would that be something that would count as reaching yeah. towards self-advocacy yes I mean only on the basis that the child wants to work towards that goal I mean I'm very specific I, I, I this self-advocacy is very tricky I struggle I'm 56 year old very independent tenacious woman I struggle to ask for help myself Mm. Um, so what we do with the kids, we break down what is self-advocacy. We, we look at the different components and then we say to the children, what, what do you want? What do you want to benefit from? What do you want to work on? And from there, we look at the child's profile uh, and, and then work with them to develop a set of, of steps, I suppose. The child's always got to be at the centre of whatever we're doing. Mm. It's not one size fits most. Here, have this target and run with it. We work mm -hmm. with them. We write the targets with the children. Mm. Do those targets involve steps for being at home? Do they are they quite inclusive for the parents? Are there you know steps that the parents are are taking in that progress as well, where maybe they have to be more aware of the kids' progress? You know, I mean, um, when I'm if I run a group. Um, if I've got I've got a group running, what I'll do is at the end after the session, 
I send the homework, I send a little feedback of what we've done in that session and then suggest what the parents could be doing at home to support. I do this weekly. I mean, you know, if you haven't got the parents on board and you haven't got the school on board, nothing's going to change. Mm. Um, so it really is. Um, it's like a part. I think I feel at times it's like a partnership with the parents. I tend, to, I tend to be in some of my parents' lives for quite a long time as well. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I feel like part of the family in some cases, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's so lovely. Um, and then maybe just backtracking slightly, the third and final aspect that you mentioned is emotional regulation. Emotional regulation. Oh, this is the massive one. Um, and uh, for my my own opinion, you know, don't don't quote me, but this is my opinion and the opinion of many people I know. Um, the driver for autistic behaviour is is anxiety. I feel for oh, wow. the driver for us for us autistics is anxiety, and I know the ADH ADHDers as well often have a high level of anxiety. So what we have to look at is if I'm I'm neurodivergent, therefore I have extremely high levels of anxiety. We can't remove that from the from the work we're doing because it's mm. part and parcel. It impacts on everything we do. So we brought the emotional regulation actually into the social into the social communication sessions, and um, this is such important work. And for me to be the best therapist I can be, I work very closely with an occupational therapist. And if you have a child who is neurodivergent, autistic, ADHD, sensory processing disorder, hypermobile, dyspraxic, mm. if you have these, some of these some of these conditions, then um, there is going to be often very high levels of anxiety. So we work on it. We work, we bring it out and we talk about it, and we try to work. We try to build really specific personal toolboxes with the children with each of the children we work with no that's incredibly interesting I don't think that's something that I'd ever considered before is that that's such you know an interconnected well thing. yes I mean so people people don't see it but I only really started seeing it when I realized I was autistic um there's the eight sense in the OT in the occupational therapy world there are not five senses there are eight senses and the eighth sense is called interception and with the far but vast majority of autistics I know have interception difficulties, I have interception difficulties. And very briefly, I'm going to tell you what that is. <laughs> Brilliant. I would, that would have been my next question. Um, interception is the, is the brain's ability to interpret the physical sensation, our sensations our body sends up towards the brain. Physical sensations of feeling hungry, feeling thirsty, wanting to go to the toilet, um, feeling hot, feeling cold, but really, really big one here is interpreting our emotions. There's a, um, there is just, there is not the brain body connect. Now, before I realized I had interception problems um, and before I was working on them, I wasn't even able to tell that I was anxious until I was probably eight or nine out of 10 on an anxiety scale, where zero's calm and 10 is meltdown. Now, I've been working on my interception. Now I can tell I'm feeling anxious at around the five mark, five out of 10 mark. Mm. So what I'm trying to say is this interception difficulty 
will make children present present as if they're going from naught to a hundred in the snap of a second. And people say, we don't know where that came from. I know where that came from. That's been the build up all day. If mm. the child's in school and they're and they've been masking all day, hiding that anxiety, it builds up, it builds up. And when they finally notice it, you can't use cognitive strategies because they're too dysregulated. So what we've decided two, two and a half years ago was to bring interception into our training, into our therapy sessions with kids. I have supervision from an OT, but I also run a therapy group now with this OT, this fabulous OT, where we actually work on both socio-cognitive and sensory strategies in a group, in a group format. Um, what might some of those look like? Because I'm sure that that must be something that so many parents experience is my child just out of nowhere just seems to, you know, have a meltdown or just out of nowhere seems to be so upset. And, you know, obviously that's upsetting for the parents to see as well and they want to help as best they can. Yes, um, what would it look like? Um, now, for example, when a child gets highly dysregulated, uh, very dysregulated, they've got three places to go, fight, flight or freeze. So these kind of behaviours, you're going to have the child running away, running um, or they're going to be shutting down um, and when they shut down you cannot it's not a teaching it's not a talking moment or then we have the fight response which could be shouting physical aggression etc etc mm. um, but you know the I often say to parents when my children flip their lid when the kids flip their lid and go into <laughs> fight flight freeze mode um we also we all often say the child is not giving you a hard time; they're having a hard time. Mm. Um, we need to chase the whys, not the what they're doing. What has happened before? Why is this happening? Um, and I think the interception difficulties are one of the least understood elements of neurodiversity. Uh, so many people I, I'm in schools, people many sort of senkos, etc aren't quite sure what this um, uh, this interception business is, but people need to be aware of it because it mm. impacts on us autistics and ADHD is so much. Mm. You know, it's incredibly interesting and it's mm. it's definitely something, as you say, that I think is very underrepresented, you know, maybe misperceived as well. It's just... I mean, seriously, we have, we often start with children on a, you know, how are you feeling? I mean, I sit there sometimes thinking, how am I feeling? I don't know. What's my body telling me? And I have to sit there and really focus and kind of do a body scan. It's not easy. And I've got a fully developed prefrontal cortex and I'm quite clever. <laughs> We've got to give the kids some slack because they, their prefrontal cortex, their thinking capacity isn't totally developed yet, but also they're struggling to understand those physical sensations of their feelings. Mm. So what might some of those... Um strategies look like when you're bringing that training in for the children what what would you advise to them oh well we we, we have books we have film clips I mean what we, what we do I have them track we show film clips where they're tracking somebody's emotions maybe becoming more heightened I mean as an example I've got Leo DiCaprio as oh Howard Hughes having a panic attack for my teens seeing him go into a panic attack and then regulate to get the lid back down and to start breathing, etc. 
Um, we often get the children to start to do body scans, noticing how their body feels when they feel a certain feeling. It's quite long work. It's slow work. Um, but it's something that parents and schools can do, too. Mm. Just even being very open about our emotions and how I'm feeling. And yes, I've had a bad day. Everybody does. Um, normalizing some of those negative feelings at home is a really, really good strategy. And maybe, you know, speaking of strategies to help at home and what parents can be doing at home, what about, you know, those children who have come home from school and they're having a bad day, but they're falling behind in schoolwork, you know, when it comes to aspects such as their homework, what is what is the sort of approach that parents should take to that? If the child's got a formal diagnosis, then there's the, the parents got a little bit more welly, a little bit mm. more argument for the child. But um, school, particularly secondary, is a really, really challenging place for neurodivergent individuals. Um, I really struggle to recommend schools in my area mm. um, because there's just simply that they simply lack the flexibility to make those reasonable adjustments for my caseload. So what do we say about homework? If they've got a formal diagnosis, I would, I've often had to advocate and suggest they don't do it. Uh, on the basis being uh, many of the kids I work with have phenomenal, um, you know, have phenomenal intelligence, particularly around certain subjects. It's a really tricky question because the classic style of parenting I'm the parent and you're the child, you'll be seen and not heard, does not in any way, shape or form work on neurodivergent children. Mm. It really doesn't. And we find, I mean, the kind of the work, when I do my parent training, we tend to talk a lot around entering their world and connecting with the child, often on their terms to bring them out. Um the homework, I would say probably 70% of my caseload probably don't don't and won't do homework. Mm. Uh, secondary school, some children uh, really like homework club where they can do the homework in school and then go home and not have to do it. Mm, uh, it's that my, separation. It's that separation. It's that compartmentalization. Mm. Uh, and particularly if one of my clients, if my clients have had a hard day at school and they have to take that piece of work with them back home and do more of it, uh, it can further dysregulate them. Mm. And so, you know, you just mentioned your parent training course. Could you maybe explain, you know, what that is? Uh, so my colleague, Emma Penfold, the occupational therapist I work with and I, we devised a programme, SPOT Parent Training. SPOT, that's the speech bit, and OT is the OT element. Mm -hmm. um, and in this course, we, we really, we basically try to work with parents on looking what is below that presenting behaviour. Look at the iceberg. Um, let's not deal with the tip of the iceberg. Let's look at what's causing that below. So it's helping, really, what we'd like to do is try and help parents become social and sensory detectives in their children to start to notice. It's a four-week course, and so we do a lot on, we actually do a lot about anxiety and anxiety management tools. And our final session is Bespoke, where we actually provide, we actually do a Bespoke presentation depending on the questions the parents have asked us. Mm. And what do you, those questions tend to involve? Do you find that there's a common yeah. thread to the questions they're bringing to you? What might one of those look like? Sleep. Sleep is the big one. 
um, if you're neurodivergent, I think if you're co, if you're dual um, autistic ADHD, you're likely to 85% are likely to have sleep disturbances. So sleep's a really big one for all of our caseload and a child is not sleeping. They're perseverating. They're worrying about something at bedtime. They're not going to get their sleep. They're going to struggle to get up. They're going to struggle to get out of the house. Um, so we have a lot of issues. Also, uh, a lot of parents have lots of questions about transition as well. Sleep and transition are massive, massive issues. When you say transition, what is it exactly that you mean? A change from one place to another. A transition could actually be a change in thinking. Um, let me give you some real classic transitions for our kids. Sunday night. They've had the weekend, Sunday night, back to school. Mm -hmm. Often you get big behaviours on that Sunday night. Um, going towards half term, going towards the end of term, coming back from half term, coming back from mm. summer holidays, going to bed, leaving school and transitioning to the home place. That for me is a, that for me was, and that for most of my clients is one of the bigger ones, transition school to home. And what might you suggest to those parents that are looking for advice with that? Oh, I would tell you know what the, the, the kids, all of the kids tell me this. I've got one or two who don't mind having a chat in the car going home <laughs> or when they get home. But what all the kids say, particularly as they get older, um, and I need this too, I totally get it. Uh, when they finish school, I always recommend to parents, don't ask any questions for at least half an hour leave them be because they are decompressing from a very stressful anxiety provoking day they're going from school bob to home bob or whatever the child's <laughs> is. Bob there. um so i always say don't don't speak to them don't speak to them and then the next week in group i'll say to the kids how did it go no they're not doing it <laughs> <laughs> and i suppose that's hard because you know as a parent you just want to, you want to know how your kids day went you want to know if they had a good day but it's just that that difference yeah, but that's for the parent's benefit. What we're trying to do is regulate the child. We're trying to get the child to feel comfortable. And I can tell you, when the child comes out of school, and if you start, how was your school? What did you do? Blah, 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 mm -hmm. What do you think that's going to do to the child's anxiety? Mm. <laughs> and that will, that will be the, that will be the, the, the road to dysregulation. Um, and the, the parents that do do it, um, it, it it's really helpful because the child's got the space, they're decompressed, they're back into home life, and they're much more, uh, much more open to talking. Or they mm. can be, I mean, not all of them, obviously, but they can be. Transitions are big. Transitions into school. I mean, some of my kids have a soft start where they can't go in with the rest of the rest of the cohorts because it's so noisy and busy so they'll come in separately and have stages to get them into the classroom and I imagine some schools are quite willing to help with that is that a point of liaison with the Senko is they agree to do that together yeah well unfortunately they have to do it or the child won't go to school so mm. so we have to work together and if the child is school refusing um then we have to work hard to get that child's motivation to come back into school. And so we have to make those reasonable adjustments. Mm, and I think, as you say, it's reasonable adjustments because obviously, yes. yeah, <laughs> it's working together. It is definitely, yeah. It's, mm. it's tricky. It's tricky. And I think the world really isn't ready for, for what autism, particularly autism, what autism actually is. 
Um, I think there's still some quite a lot of stigma and old-fashioned mm. notions about what it means to be autistic. Um, so I think, you know, we need to change schools thinking as well. And maybe a few parents too, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's brilliant. And I mean, even if it's just that a few of our listeners hear this and think, oh, I really have to tell someone about this. I, I learned this really interesting thing about interception. You know, you'd hope that it's even just a little bit at a time. Yes, yeah. I mean, there's so much to know. I mean, this is my special interest, remember? So I've learned a lot about it. <laughs> <laughs> you say you believe you have the best job in the world. I do. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant to see that. But maybe you could explain why that is. Well, I don't at the end of the academic year when I'm on my knees. I then, <laughs> I then want to be a bus driver or a train. <laughs> but actually, no, I do have the best job in the world. Um, why? Uh, it's my special interest. Um, I love social communication. It absolutely fascinates me. Um, so the fact that it's tied in with a very strong interest of mine is one thing. Mm. But I'm hanging out with exceptional, amazing individuals these kids blow my mind away. They are so clever. They are so insightful. They are so flexible. Hey, get that, autistic kids, flexible. <laughs> they're so flexible. Um, you know, it's an absolute privilege, and I mean that. It's an absolute privilege to work with them. But when we work in a group, we're in it together. I'm not the facilitator. I'm part of the group. We're in it together. Mm. We're a team. And when you see that child start to develop their confidence or start to be able to regulate and use cognitive strategies to help them, then it's it's job done. It's brilliant. And then I cry. The parents cry. You know, the kids <laughs> won't. Um, I get very emotional. I get very emotional when the children you know, start to make gains because I know how difficult it is to function in a neurotypical world as a neurodivergent individual. Mm. And I think that's all the parents want as well, is for other people to be able to recognise how incredible their child is and, and, you know, for their child to recognise it in themselves as well. Mm. I, you know, I just love the individuality as well. You know, mm. The kids, come, I mean, some of the girls, are oh, the clothes they wear, you know, just fascinating, just like really creative individuals. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Oh, thank you. Well, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> you can find more information about Michelle and her website, Word of Mouth Therapy, in the show notes, alongside the link to the Simply Learning Tuition website.